Welcome to Pillar and Ground Podcast. I'm Brian Salter, lead pastor at LMPC. This episode is a Pillar and Ground confession episode where we seek to further understand and apply the truths in the Westminster Confession of Faith. And we remain on Westminster Confession of Faith section chapter 2, part 1. And we've been looking at who is God I want to begin our study today by considering this story about Jonathan Edwards, a pastor in Massachusetts in the 18th century. After talking about the need for revival in his hometown, an incredulous church member questioned him. Surely everyone believes in God already. Yes, Edwards replied. But what kind of God do they believe in? When I show them the God of the Bible, they say, no, I don't believe in that God. I believe in a God who is more to my liking. The Westminster Confession of Faith in chapter 2 describes the God of the Bible. Maybe not the one to our liking, but the one true and living God described as he has revealed himself in the scriptures. And we must understand who God is based on how he's revealed himself And the confession in 2.1 says that he is most loving, gracious, merciful, long-suffering, abundant in goodness and truth, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin, and he is the rewarder of those who diligently seek him. This particular sentence may sound a lot like what the Bible says in Exodus 34, 6-7. When the Lord revealed himself to Moses, and he passed in front of Moses, proclaiming, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Some may call this list, this sentence in the Confession of Faith, a list of God's ethical attributes. And first it says that he is most loving. He is abounding in love, as Exodus tells us. First John chapter 4, verse 8 says, Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. And First John four sixteen says, And so we know and rely on the love God has for us. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God, and God in him. I recently was studying for this episode and came across some classical theological definitions for the love of God and found them helpful. I I had forgotten these three categories or dimensions or uh, aspects of God's love, if you will. But it is God's love of benevolence, God's love of beneficence, and God's love of complacency. Those words are big words. I find them really helpful when we understand them, particularly the God's love of complacency. You may be already raising your eyebrow and saying, what does that mean? First, God's love of benevolence. That is simply when we talk of the love of God, God's goodwill to the creature and to the creation from eternity and all humanity enjoys God's love of benevolence. God's love of beneficence is that he does good to the creature in time according to his will. These are his good deeds that again all receive, that he gives rain that falls on the just and the unjust. God's love of beneficence is where we understand things like common grace 
and his attribute of goodness. And, and when you understand God's love of benevolence and God's love of beneficence, you can say to every human being, God loves you. The love of complacency is where we would be able to say God loves you redemptively, and that is something that only is known in the heavens and we seek to know by faith in Jesus. But as we consider God's love of beneficence, consider common grace. The Lord is good to all. Psalm 145, verse 9. I do like what John Frame prefers over the word common grace. He prefers the word common goodness, saying that grace is tied so specifically to redemption that maybe common goodness would be a better way to understand God's love of beneficence. John Murray defines this dimension of God's loving beneficence in this way. Every favor of whatever kind or degree falling short of salvation, which this undeserving and sin-cursed world enjoys at the hand of God, is his common grace. Various aspects of common grace or common goodness include God's restraint of sin. People are not as bad as they possibly could be. God's restraint of his wrath, God's gift of temporal blessings to all. And so we understand his goodness, his benevolence, his beneficence. Psalm 145.9, as we said, the Lord is good to all. He has compassion on all he has made. I think Herman Bavink is really helpful when he looks through the lens of God's goodness. Uh, for Bavink and his work concerning God's ethical attributes, his first place is God's goodness. And I know we're talking about the love of God, but he says this, among God's ethical attributes, first place is due to God's goodness. The goodness of God, when shown to those in misery, is his mercy. The goodness of God, which spares those who are deserving punishment, is called forbearance or patience or long-suffering. God's goodness is much more glorious when it is shown to those who only deserve evil, and it then bears the name grace. Patience and long-suffering is the goodness of God to spare those deserving punishment. The goodness of God appears as love when it not only conveys certain benefits, but God himself. And so Bavink sees the love of God as part of God's goodness. Others see the love of beneficence as an expression of his goodness and love. As we've said before, God has all of his attributes all of the time. But consider God's love of complacency, as I mentioned at the beginning. We typically hear this word and we think of the meaning indifferent, uh, lazy, detached. You may even hear coaches say that, you know, after you win a ball game, we cannot get complacent. In other words, you cannot enjoy what just happened too much because then you'll get lazy and fail. If you become delighted in something, you must not become relaxed or smug about it. That's the modern word. When you read in theological works, God's love of complacency, it comes from the Latin meaning which is finding great pleasure or delight. This is that which God takes endless delight, that he has an endless delight. It does not have any risk of becoming lazy or indifferent or smug. And thus consider his endless delight. And this is rich news. 
What did he say to Jesus at the baptism? This is my son in whom I am well pleased. In that context, God announces his love of complacency in Jesus, his endless absolute delight in his son. Thus, for those of us who are in the Son, we receive God's love of complacency, his endless delight and pleasure. John chapter 17, 23 is a stunning declaration when Jesus says to the Father in prayer, you have loved them even as you have loved me. Those who belong to God in Christ are loved with this endless delight. All of his creatures receive the benefit of his love of benevolence and love of beneficence. But it's only those who are redeemed who enjoy God's love of complacency, his endless delight and pleasure. The confession goes on to say he is gracious and merciful. Moses hears that in Exodus of compassionate and gracious God. God's grace is his sovereign unmerited favor given to those who deserve his wrath. This grace and mercy describes the covenantal favor that Yahweh gives to undeserving people who bear his name and are loved by him. R.C. Sproul says that God's love is seen in his graciousness. And to be gracious is to treat people better than they deserve. We define grace as unmerited favor. If God treated us strictly according to the canons of justice, he would punish us for eternity. But instead, he is gracious, tender, and merciful. He reserves the right to extend that mercy and grace to those he sovereignly chooses. God said, Romans 9, 15, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. And one of the greatest misconceptions about biblical truth, Sproul goes on to say, is the idea that God is somehow obligated to be equally merciful to everyone. If he were obligated to be merciful, then it would be justice, not mercy. It would be what he must do if he is righteous. And the whole point of mercy is that it's free and voluntary. God is so loving that he gives mercy far beyond anything we could ever hope or imagine. He is most gracious and most merciful. He is long-suffering. Exodus 34, 6 through 7 says he is slow to anger. This attribute is often rendered as the patience of God, that God is a God who waits, though he can accomplish his will instantly. He is patient. His choice to wait is seen in his long suffering. He is abundant in truth. The confession says he is a God of faithfulness without deceit. He is trustworthy. He will always stand by his words and promises and prove them true. Deuteronomy chapter 32 verse 4 says he is the rock. His works are perfect and all his ways are just. A faithful God who does no wrong, upright and just is he. And Jeremiah 10.10 says the Lord is the true God. He is the living God, the eternal king. 
What a joy to know that our God is faithful and there is no deceit within him. He is trustworthy and we can trust him as he is. But then it says he forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. Uh, Exodus 34, 6 through 7 says that. But I want to point us to what those three words mean, iniquity, transgression, and sin. If you read Psalm 51, which is David's confession of sin after failing with Bathsheba and murdering Uriah, he says this, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion. Now listen to this. Blot out my transgressions, wash away all my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. Three words to describe what God must do in him and for him for him to be forgiven and washed clean. It's really important that we understand what these words mean. Iniquity. When you hear the word iniquity, think infection. That we are permeated with sin. That sin stains everything. Our desires, our words, our thoughts, our actions. You can't escape the stain in any way in your life. Paul Tripp says, Iniquity is like washing brand new socks with bright white clothes, brand new red socks with bright white clothes. Not one piece of the white clothing will escape the stain. Sin is that pervasive. That's iniquity, infection. Transgression is insubordination. It's flagrant sin. It's knowing precisely what God forbids and violating his commandment. It is parking in a no parking zone, clearly marked and clearly seen without excuse. It is willful rebellion against someone to whom we owe allegiance. That's transgression. It's flagrant. And sin is incompetence. It's falling short of the standard of God's character and law. Full knowledge that my best effort, my best intentions will fall short. To miss the mark or target, we fail to live for God's glory and instead live for our own. Failure to live as God wants in every way is sin. Thus, it includes omissions about God's call to love and contentment. It also includes commissions where he may prohibit lying or stealing. So it includes what we have not done and what we have done. And here's the good news of Exodus 34, 6 through 7 in the confession. God forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. God forgives our infection, our insubordination, and our incompetence by his grace, mercy, and in his love. The confession in this sentence ends with the, he is the rewarder of those who diligently seek him. It's interesting, and we should note who seeks him. Hebrews eleven six says, without faith, it is impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. The confession is true. God rewards those who diligently seek him, but please consider a necessary clarification. Romans 3.11 says this, there is no one who seeks God. So who are the rewarded who diligently seek him? They are the found. They are the ones who have been found in Christ. It's important to know that in the Bible, seekers are those who have been made alive and now with open eyes, they seek him. 
Notice the contrast in Matthew 6, 32-33. For the pagans run after all these things, but for you, those who've been found, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. So take great hope in the confession of faith. In this particular sentence, he is most loving, gracious, merciful, long-suffering, abundant in goodness and truth, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin. And he is the rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Thank you for joining another episode of Pillar and Ground.